You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Midland, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered missional family. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit www.redeemermidland.org. Amen. Y'all grab a seat. Welcome. Welcome to Redeemer. If you're online, welcome. We're excited from wherever you are joining us to have you. Uh, My name is Jason Hatch. If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 53. If you're new to Christianity, new to the Bible, uh, it's in the Old Testament. Feel free to use your table of contents or obviously your device or uh, it will be here on the screen for you. Um, I normally don't preach in a t-shirt. In fact, I don't think I've ever preached, at least here in a t-shirt. Some of you are like, praise God, I'm so glad I have found my place. Uh, Some of you, maybe you're offended, so let me explain. Uh, I showed up this morning in a really nice button-down collared shirt. I stand up here for sound check, and the uh, live stream tells me, oh, it's green again which means I was like glowing. Like, I don't know if you know this, but a green shirt with the camera glows. But uh, if you're like me and you're somewhat colorblind, you don't know that. So I'm like, listen, guys, calm down. Uh, It's just another gray shirt like all the other shirts that I wear. But it turns out that it was green. They were right, and I was glowing. And luckily, today is also free T-shirt day. So... Uh, I am a live example of what is out uh, in the parking lot, so uh, feel free to grab uh, a free t-shirt. I think they go all the way down to like little baby onesies. So if your kids have outgrown them, if you don't have one, if you've outgrown it, let's just blame it on the material shrinking instead of us growing. Grab a new one on your way out, uh, wear it in public, invite somebody to church, talk about Jesus. That's what they are for. We're giving them away today and next Sunday uh, just to try to get the word out to the city and hopefully invite some folks to come and hear about Jesus on Easter. Uh, Second thing, and then we'll jump in. You probably saw these when you walked in the building. This is uh, the physical copy, and there's also a digital copy. Uh, This is a one-week Easter week devotional that was put together by you. Um, This was written by Covenant Partners here at Redeemer uh, and put together by none other than Melissa Tapper, who's done an incredible job. Yes. Uh, so grab one of these on your way out. Um, they, they really starts next Sunday. So if you want to grab this, get ready. Uh, use it beginning next Sunday every day. There's some devotions in here for adults. There's some in here for uh, children. Use it for yourself. Use it for your, with your roommates. Use it with your kids. And uh, talk all week. It really leads you through the last week of Jesus' life to let you know a little bit about what was going on. So uh, take that, use that as a resource um, to help you celebrate and get to know Jesus. And let's jump in this morning. Uh, Today is week two of three weeks uh, of a special series that we're using to lead up until Easter. Uh, And I'm really excited about this because it it prepares our mind, it prepares our heart for what we celebrate uh, on Easter because there's not really a celebration when Jesus rose from the grave unless unless he went to the cross and accomplished what he did on the cross. Um, So last week, today, and next week, we're talking about some large implications of the cross. Um, The cross is, uh, by a long measure, the most visible and recognizable icon in human history. If you see a little apple with a bite taken out of it, you know what that means. That's a pretty recognizable icon, but only for about uh, 20 years, and in 20 years, it'll probably fade away. Uh, Everybody knows what the swoosh is for Nike. It's a very recognizable, probably globally icon, but in a few years, it'll be replaced by something else. For 2,000 years, just a very simple cross, two lines, has been the most recognizable symbol, I believe, or icon, stands for something in human history. 
And out of all the things that God could have chosen to represent him on earth and really uh, as the destiny for Christ, why on earth would he choose a cross? Because if you know much about a cross and what it means, truly what it means, uh, then it's, it's a strange thing for God to choose, and yet he did. So we're exploring why did God choose a cross? Even if you understand that Jesus had to give his life, like why would he choose that method there's other less painful, less publicly shameful ways to die. Why did Jesus choose a cross? And so we were in Genesis 3 last week. We'll look at it again this week and, uh, spoiler alert, probably again next week. Uh, because what you see in Genesis 3 is when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they sinned. They brought sin into humanity. Three main things fractured. They felt three emotions that they had not felt. You have felt these. These have wreaked havoc on your life uh, just as much as they have mine. Uh, fear, guilt, and shame. Those were never part of God's design, and yet because of sin, those three things entered. And so very strategically, the cross is dealing with those three things, our enemies of fear, which we looked at last week, guilt, and shame. Um, so the cross is very specifically working against the sin and brokenness from Genesis chapter 3. So for today, uh, it's everyone's favorite topic, your favorite topic, and mine. Let's talk about guilt. Everybody say guilt. You're like, I knew it. Somebody invited me to church, and all they talk about is guilt, and here I am, and what are we talking about? Guilt. Have you ever been guilty of anything? When I was in eighth grade, I did something wrong. Um, sorry. <laughs> I'm not perfect. It was not the first time, nor was it the last time, nor will it be the last time, but I did something wrong, and I was caught at school. It was something uh, that my best friend and I, Wes Malone, had done. And we got caught, and like it was so blatant that th there was no trial, judge, jury. Uh, we were just like sent that day to ISS, to in-school suspension uh, at Bushland Elementary. Uh, and uh, in Bushland Elementary, if you're in eighth grade, the ISS room is in the other building in the kindergarten hall for some reason. I don't know. I don't understand. Uh, but it was so bad, they just sent us straight over there uh, to begin our sentence. And then I didn't know the other things that had transpired, but they had called my dad who uh, lived or he worked in Amarillo, uh, which was, and he owned his own business and he was busy, you know, hard for him to get away and uh, about a 30 minute drive for him out to Bushland Elementary. And so Wes and I go to ISS. We're just sitting in this little bitty, uh, quarantined room, isolated from the general public for safety reasons in this like little lonely kindergarten corridor and I'm just thinking like how am I going to play this off to my dad and explain him that it wasn't my fault and find somebody else to blame and like come up with all these uh, reasons why I wasn't guilty although I, I very clearly was and I was sitting there at my, at my, not my desk, it was some kindergartner's desk and I just hear these footsteps coming down the hallway I was like whew that sounds like my dad those are boots. I recognize that. And he just, no lie, he had taken off work, driven 30 minutes, uh, and he came walking down the hallway, and he just peeked his head in the room, and he just said, and he's got a really deep voice, big beard, manly-looking guy, and he just said, I'll see you at home. And then he turned around, and he went back to work. 
And it was then that I understood what Hebrews 10 means when it says that there's only fearful expectation of judgment. Um, I've employed that multiple times with my kids because like, but between then and getting home was kind of this, like I, I was dealing with guilt and I knew I had done something wrong. So why was it setting so hard on me? Because I was expecting, I was either trying to find a way to prove my innocence, which was not true, or find a way to escape the judgment, which was coming for me. Uh, so like guilt, it, just the, the reality of guilt, the feelings of guilt, they do some strange things. Um, Sigmund Freud, who um, by all accounts really was not a Christian, he wasn't a, a professing believer, uh, but he recognized that with his patients, one of the roots of massive, massive problems in their lives, in every arena of their life, was guilt. He just realized that people were walking around with a lot of sense of guilt, and it was causing a lot of problems. So he was trying to uh, release uh, humanity, or in his case, his patients, um, from this obvious uh, destructive force of guilt in their lives. He acknowledged uh, subjective guilt, but not objective guilt. He said, well, you feel guilty, subjective guilt, but it doesn't mean that you are guilty, objective guilt. So he basically acknowledged that there's a feeling that's causing a problem, but he did not believe the Bible's account that we're going to look at in Genesis 3 about where that came from, that it's because we feel guilty because, in fact, we are guilty. And yet, he, so he was trying to fix that problem without truly acknowledging the cause of it. And so uh, he would uh, spend a lot of time and a lot of um, study resources, and he would rename the conscience, which is this internal uh, mechanism God gave us to know when we're guilty. Uh, he would rename that the superego and would basically try to uh, tell people, listen, no, you feel guilty. That's just some strange psychological phenomenon, and here's how we're going to work on it. And you know this, like, like Freud has infiltrated our culture deeply. And he has some deep, deep beliefs that we've probably inherited at one level or another that are not true. They're not biblical. Uh, he just wrote it off, wrote off this guilt uh, as just some strange psycholo psychological phenomenon with really no cause. Uh, he was trying to fix the problem, which all of us have felt and dealt with, uh, without truly understanding where it came from. So what happens? It's like mowing over weeds. They just pop up somewhere else and sometimes worse. So uh, Genesis chapter 3, you can turn there if you want, or you can um, follow along here on the screen with me. Uh, and I promise we'll get to Isaiah 53, a few places to land on our journey there. Um, th this is where subjective and objective guilt came from. This is where the feeling of guilt and the reality that we're guilty came from. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 begins like this. And they, that's Adam and Eve, after they sinned. So God said, you can do all this, a lot of freedom, a lot of places to run and, and things to do and, and things to enjoy. Don't do this one thing. What's the one thing that they did? Parents in the room, that one thing. They decided, you know what, I'm not going to listen to God. I don't need his authority. I'll be my own God. I'll make my own rules. They defied God. They sinned against God. They were objectively guilty. He said, don't do this. That's what they did. And they, that's Adam and Eve, after they'd sinned, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. I have some strange suspicion that it sounds like big boots, like coming down the hallway in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves. They'd never felt this compulsion to hide before. They had never had any reason to do so. But they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? 
And he, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. He had never felt fear before. This is what we looked at last week, how the cross very specifically was designed to deal with our fear. I was afraid because I was naked, and we'll look at that uh, next week, this idea of, of, of shame that came in because of, uh, of their sin. Uh, they, I realized I was naked. Uh, I, I hid myself. Verse 11 says, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Uh, he, no, he had been caught red-handed, and God confronts him. And, and you know as well as I do, it's just so difficult for us, and we inherited this from Adam, to just simply admit that we're wrong and admit that we're guilty. There's a mechanism in us that absolutely hates that and will fight against it uh, really to the, to the bitter end sometimes. So God just poses this very simple yes or no question, are you guilty, basically, is what he's saying. And the man said, this was his moment to shine in humility and in honesty and say, yes, please forgive us. Did he do that? Sadly, no. The man said, the woman. Uh, men in the room, this is a bad idea. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, he does not want to admit that he's guilty, so he just begins uh, pointing fingers and, and blaming other people. So he says, listen, uh, the woman you did, so it, his, his, his moment to be a valiant husband of courage just throws his uh, wife under the bus. Uh, the woman blames her, who you gave me. So it's kind of half her fault. It's kind of half your fault, God, because she was your idea, and now she's messing everything up. The man said, uh, the woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, okay, ladies, so it's your turn. Does Eve do much better than Adam did? This was her moment to shine valiantly as a courageous uh, woman and wife. And she says, uh, he says to the woman, what is this that you have done? And she said, the devil made me do it, the serpent the serpent deceived me, and I ate. She's like, listen, I'm not really guilty. Uh, I know Adam already blamed me and you, and I don't have anybody else left to blame, so I'm going to blame the serpent. Like, she just had an uncanny ability, just like Adam, to reject the idea that they were guilty and begin blaming and making all these excuses, and so the guilt remains and begins to do uh, massive problems. Uh, if you have ever, like, taught children or been around kids, or maybe you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or uncle, uh, you've probably been in this situation where a kid just did something and it's so blatant you caught them doing something wrong and so you ask them did you did something do something wrong and they say no and they'll just like fight you about it you're like I saw you I just watched you hit him did you hit him no like th there's such a strange way th that we've inherited from Adam and Eve that we have to try to just completely ignore the fact um, that we are guilty. Uh, they tend to just deny it, or if they're caught, then they downplay, or then we blame others, or we make excuses. Uh, it really is uh, a tale as old as time that we've inherited that from Adam and Eve. Uh, one of my children, she will rename nameless. Uh, we only have one daughter. Uh, years ago, and I asked her permission this morning to share the story. Uh, they teach you, as if you're a parent, not to discipline out of anger, uh, and it turns out that's fairly difficult uh, because when kids disobey, it makes you what? 
very angry, and she had a, a will of steel. And uh, I remember, this was quite a few years ago, she had done something wrong, and I was trying to discipline her, and I was trying to do it calmly, and she was, like, resisting and making me more angry. So I was like, listen, I'm, I'm going to take a timeout, which you p- parents know, like, timeouts are not for the kids. They're for the parents to calm down. So, and she was defying me about this timeout and making me more angry, and she was in the pantry, so I just shut the door. She was in the pantry. I said, you calm down. I'll calm down. We'll talk later. I shut the door. I walk off. Uh, I forget about this. A few minutes later, I'm like, gosh, where is Paisley? Judah's like, you locked her in the pantry. Oh, oh, yeah. And I go and I open the pantry, and she is there with a bottle of pink sprinkles, pink sprinkles in her hand, pink all over her face. And I said, Paisley, did you eat sprinkles? She looked at me. She said, no. I was like, come on. But she, she, she denied it so hard, I was beginning to have second thoughts, like, maybe I did that. Maybe I gave her the sprinkles. There, there's something strange. No, like, you, it, it's easy to see this in kids. Uh, if we're honest, we're exactly the same way before God uh, when we're presented with this idea that we're guilty. And, and stop me when I'm wrong. Actually, don't. Uh, but, like... If you present to somebody that's not a Christian in our culture today, oh, you're guilty before God, they're not going to like that. And they're going to come up with 10 reasons why that is absolutely not true. Well, no, no, I'm not guilty. I don't like that. That just sounds harsh. That's what's playing out from Adam and Eve all the way through to us. So uh, do we feel guilty subjectively or are we guilty objectively? Uh, I want to read some of the Bible uh, for you because I think that's probably a lot better uh, than Sigmund Freud. So this is what the Bible says. Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to move quickly. Uh, so listen up. And it's not on the screen, I don't believe. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written... He's quoting Psalm, so this is like an Old Testament and a New Testament truth. He just says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. That's Paul's way of saying everybody is guilty. Romans 3.23, you know this, it says, for all, how many? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says, everybody's guilty. Uh, James, Jesus' little brother, chapter 2, verses 10 through 11 says this, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point. It's like, well, I've never murdered anybody, I've never stolen anybody, but I have lied, I have uh, committed adultery, I have looked at something I shouldn't have seen, I have worshipped another God. He's like, listen, if you've crushed it in 99%, but you've broken one, this is what James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. He's like, cool, you can crush it on 99% and you break one, and what does that make you? James says, guilty. John, the disciple who Jesus loved, in John 3, 16, many of y'all know this verse. Maybe you you love this verse. Maybe you're very excited about this verse. This is what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You're like, oh, good, a really encouraging verse that doesn't have to do with guilt. Uh, Let's keep going. Verse 18, for whoever, and this is Jesus speaking, for whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Correction, I don't think that was Jesus speaking. It's John talking about Jesus. But he says, listen, here's the deal. Like, your sin didn't make you guilty. You were guilty already. Jesus came because we're all guilty. And you can read through the whole Bible, and this is what you're going to find out. It says that we are all guilty. And if you believe in a, in a holy God that is just and is bound by his character to deal with sin, that creates a massive problem. And so what do we do? Is our initial reaction to be like, man, you're right, God, I'm guilty, uh, I confess. No, we have the same mechanisms that have been passed on from Adam and Eve all the way to us to try to reject the truth that we are, in fact, guilty. Uh, Jeff Foxworthy, the great theologian, uh, many of y'all remember his old lines, his... Um, uh, Redneck, yes. You might be a redneck if, and then he would say something and say, like, if that's true of you or if that kind of resonates with you, you might be a redneck. How many of you found out through all that you're a redneck? Uh, I'm going to do somewhat of that, but this is a little bit different. This is you might be objectively guilty if, okay? I'm going to work through seven things um, that if these are true at all of you, uh, or if you resonate with them, there's a good chance that means that we're guilty, okay? Um, number one, and these really, when we're confronted with this idea, uh, either from God himself, from God's word, from, from a Christian, that we are guilty of something, how we respond really, it, it's, it's very important. So number one, uh, you might be objectively guilty if, when confronted with guilt, you hide, okay? That's the first thing that Adam and Eve did. And there's a lot of ways that we hide. Maybe you didn't go run and hide in a closet or under a couch, um, but if we're confronted with the idea that we might be guilty, many people hide by um, not going to church, by not opening their Bible, by not wanting to talk to a Christian, by not believing that there is a God. There's a lot of ways that we try to hide uh, if we believe that we feel guilty because we think, oh, if I can hide, which is inevitably, like it was kind of what I was trying to do in the kindergarten room, like if I can just avoid dad, it'll be okay. And so if there's ever been a moment in your life when you have um, tried to hide, uh, th then, then you might have, be, ha have objective guilt. Because you know this, like you don't hide unless you're guilty, Right? If a parent busts into a room with four of their kids and three of them quickly run and get under the bed and one's just sitting there, which ones are guilty? You don't even know what they did, but you know they did something. Why? Because they are hiding. The one that's just sitting there like, well, there's no reason to hide. Guilty people don't run and hide. So if you're ever confronted with this idea of guilt uh, and you try to hide, however that may be, um, probably a sign that we're guilty. Number two. Uh, when confronted with guilt, we deny or we're in denial. Uh, this is a hard one because this is like blind spots. Like has anybody ever asked you, do you have any blind spots? And your answer is no. It's like, well, you do. You just don't, you're not aware of them. So this is why this one's tricky because uh, we can be in denial that we're not actually guilty, but we don't know that. Why? Because we're in denial. So this one's easier to detect in other people. So I'll give you a little out on this one. Have you ever known somebody that just blatantly was guilty and they were in absolute denial about it? Uh, if you know somebody that's been like that, chances are uh, we have probably been like that also. 
I did some uh, prison ministry years ago uh, just west of downtown Dallas, uh, and I remember sitting down um, with uh, one of the guys. Uh, we're sharing the gospel with him. I was hearing a little bit of his story, uh, and he, he looked at me, and he said, you know, everybody in this whole place is innocent, and then he, like, winked at me. He's like, they're, they're all in denial that they've done anything. You know, he's trying to, I think he was trying to be a, a little bit truthful, a little bit uh, joking. But like this idea that we can go a long way still not really either internally or externally agreeing that we have committed a sin, that we are guilty. If you've ever been in denial, you just might be objectively guilty. Number three, when confronted with guilt, uh, we blame we blame someone else. And again, this one's very easy to see in other people. Um, well, you know what? I kind of did something wrong, but you don't understand. I'm not really guilty. It's not really my fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my husband's fault. It's my parents' fault. Uh, it's my personality. It's the way that I'm wired. It's my history. It's my family of origin. I mean, this is, this is what Adam and Eve did. Like, nope. I'm not going to accept the fact that I'm guilty. I'm going to blame shift and put it on everybody else. And listen, I've been in ministry long enough to know that we are experts at this. We can come up with tons of reasons to try to shift and deflect that guilt so that we don't feel it and try and push it off on someone else. If you have ever tried to blame someone or something else, you either might be a redneck or you might be objectively guilty. Number four, when you're confronted with guilt, you compare. This, this happens all the time. You're confronted with guilt. Well, I think you did something wrong. I think you might be guilty. And your response is, well, maybe, but I'm not as bad as this person. I didn't do as much as this person. I'm not as guilty as this person. And you just need to know that if you play the comparing game, there's always somebody doing worse than you. You can always find someone else that you're, at least in the moment, um, doing better. Why is it that we have such a hard time believing that we're guilty of something and, and we'll just start comparing? Well, I'm kind of guilty, but not as guilty as that gal, not as guilty as that guy. See, if, if you don't like the outcome when you measure yourself up against the Bible, what we do is we just change the measuring stick. Because if you measure us up against the Bible, we're guilty. If you measure yourself up against your neighbor that's not doing so well, we kind of look a little better, right? You might be guilty. Uh, number five, when confronted with guilt, uh, you just kind of change the standard. And this is happening in a profound way in our culture. Uh, you don't want to believe that maybe you're a sinner or that you're guilty uh, when confronted with that. Uh, you can't change your actions or what you did, so you just change the moral standard or the law. So this is what, like, you know, the Bible is super clear, and we can do, we'll just pick this one, sexual sin. Like, sex was designed for one man, one woman that are inside of a covenant lifelong marriage. And the Bible says anything outside of that has two names. Adultery and fornication, that's it. There's no other options. And so, and Jesus would lump in. He's like, yeah, actions of your body have something to do with it, but also what you think, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. So, like, that, that's just what the Bible says, but our culture is like, well, I, I did that, but I don't want to feel guilty, so I'll just change the standard. And this is how it goes. Well, surely... The Bible doesn't still mean that. Like, surely that's not still how God defines sin. This is probably how it goes. Um, the, the Bible says that 
sexual sin is sexual sin, where you're guilty of either adultery or fornication right up until the 21st century. And then it's okay. That one expires in the 21st century. And that's what, and it's a lot of places, a lot of different commands in the Bible, our culture is doing this, where instead of being confronted with the idea that we're guilty, we just try to change the standard. If you've ever tried to twist the Bible to fit your sin or your action, that's this defense mechanism trying to keep us from owning guilt. Number six, when confronted with guilt, we try to fill up on good works. Like, well, you know, I I did something wrong, but I'm just going to try really hard and be really good and do a lot of good things. It's almost like we're We felt the scales tip in one way towards guilt. We're just really trying to pile it on the other side. I I, I see this a lot that instead of really dealing with guilt, we just try to fix it by adding a lot of good works on the other side. It's this idea that I'll just try harder because I'm sure if I try harder, I'll be better. Uh, I'll do better next time. Uh, So there's got to be a different way to deal with guilt if none of these work and most of them cause more problems and they allow guilt inside to compound. Like there has to be a different way than just trying harder. When we moved to Midland, um, I'll never forget the house we moved in had not taken care of their yard, uh, so the back was just full of stickers. Uh, And Judah was about five at the time, and I asked his permission for this store as well. And he had made a giant hole and, and mud pit in the back of the yard, but between the back porch and the yard was just stickers, and he, hates, he hated and he hates shoes. And so he would run out there and just get stickers all in his feet and come back crying, we'd pull them out, and he'd do it again over and over and over. And I said, buddy, like, there's got to be a different way. I sat him down. I was like, listen, I, I want work with me. You're here. It's there. There's nothing but stickers. Every time you go barefoot, you should learn something when it hurts. So you should wear shoes. And he looked at me and just said, no, Dad, I'll just run faster. And I thought, man, <laughs> so I really like your energy, buddy. I like your attitude. That doesn't work, okay? You, you don't need to do the same thing and try harder. You need a, a different approach. Like so, so the gospel offers the only different approach that actually deals with guilt other than all the things that humanity tries to come up with. Number seven, uh, and, and this one will get you every time, if you're honest, okay, when you're confronted with Christ, if you're ever confronted with Christ it, just in all of his purity and perfection and glory, then you will recognize and feel guilt a lot more. If you're comparing to other things or other people, you might be okay. But when you honestly compare yourself with Jesus, there, there, there should be a way in which that we think, okay, if that's innocence, that is not me. I'm guilty. Okay, so what happens when you find out that you're guilty, and this is when we begin to talk about the cross, because guilt is a massive problem for humanity. How is God going to deal with it? Hence the question, why a cross? Uh, in Luke chapter 20, uh, 23, uh, you can go read this. Uh, I would really actually highly recommend you to read this in the next week or two. Um, this is the trial uh, of Christ. Uh, when he is brought before the people who had the authority to either turn him loose or crucify him. 
And the judge that presided over that was a man named Pilate. And so everybody had done all the digging that they could find to try and find all the dirt that they could on Jesus because they wanted to make sure he was found guilty so they could crucify him. They presented their case. And, 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 and this is what Pilate came up with. He said, listen, I've heard everything. I can find absolutely nothing. He is not guilty. The gavel falls, Pilate says, he's not guilty. He has done nothing. That was Pilate's estimation of Christ. Not guilty. Uh, you remember then they just crucified him because the Jews hated him because they were, Jesus was calling them out and saying that they were guilty and they needed to repent and, and they did not like that. And the only thing that they could find to accuse Jesus of was like he is claiming that he's God, which if that's false, that is worthy of, of death in the Jewish culture. But if it's true... Even by the Jewish standards, he was innocent. And so then they put him on a cross between, you know the story, between two criminals, two thieves. Uh, one of them was just kind of this vile, wicked person that's railing at Jesus while he's pinned up there hanging on a cross. And he's railing against Jesus. He's like, listen, if you, say, if, if you are who you say you are, then you'll just get us down off of here. And, and do you remember what the other one said? Let me read it to you. Uh, he said, he, 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 it's, it's this criminal rebuking the one that's rebuking Jesus. And he says, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. It was blatantly obvious to everyone that Jesus was innocent. All of humanity, according to the whole Bible, is guilty and Jesus is innocent. So, Isaiah chapter 53. If the question is, what was happening on the cross? Why did God choose a cross? I'll give you a hint. Uh, it, the cross had been planned for hundreds of years, if not for all of eternity. It wasn't just some event that ha happened to transpire. It was strategically designed by God to deal with the problem of guilt. So Isaiah, uh, if you're new to the Bible, it's a, it's a prophet uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet who spoke for God. The Holy Spirit spoke to him, and he spoke to the people. He was the mouthpiece uh, for God. Uh, and he was uh, writing about 700 years before Jesus was born. Seven centuries before Christ, he's writing before crucifixion had ever been invented yet by the Persians. And before we get to 53, let me read just a couple verses from the opening lines of uh, Isaiah chapter 1, because he's basically saying what the whole book of Isaiah is going to be about. Isaiah 1.18 says this, come now, God speaking, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. That's him saying, you're guilty. You're all guilty. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Th th though you're guilty, I'm going to acquit you. I'm going to treat you as innocent. Though they are, like, are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's almost like the thesis statement of not just the book of Isaiah, but what Jesus was doing on the cross. And then Isaiah 53, uh, th this is... My favorite chapter of the Bible, this is the first chapter that I ever memorized years and years ago. It is dripping, maybe, maybe more than any chapter in the New Testament, dripping with the blood of Christ. 
Y'all remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch? This is New Testament. This is after uh, Jesus had uh, been buried and risen. This is in the book of Acts. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is, is, is writing, and he's reading a scroll, and he's confused, which is many of you, if you're brand new to the Bible, uh, you open up Isaiah, you read it, you're like, I'm confused. Uh, he, he reads it. He's confused. He says, I need somebody to teach me. And so he asks Philip, and he says, what's going on? Who in the world is Isaiah chapter 53 talking about? And he says, Jesus. It's talking about Jesus. It's talking about the cross. Let's read it together. Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, the first part has to do with the description of Jesus. 700 years before he is born, his humble beginnings it says this, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Jesus, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, meaning he didn't show up like an angel radiating. He showed up like a normal human being that fit in with everyone else. There was no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And then in the next few verses, he, it talks a little bit about what Jesus would do, or what Jesus did, actions of this, this, this Messiah that would come 700 years later. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. What Isaiah is saying is really he's presenting two different perspectives of the cross, one is a human perspective, like, God, he's, he's, he's being punished. And, and one is a godly perspective, like saying, no, he, he, he's carrying our grief. He's, he's doing something on purpose. Verse 5, but he was pierced, which is language that describes crucifixion before it existed. He was pierced. Why? For our transgressions, that means guilt. He was crushed. Why? For our iniquities, that means sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It sounds like Jesus is a substitute on a cross in someone else's place. And then it gives one verse for us. One verse that describes the rest of humanity. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. It's like guilty. We're all guilty. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the guilt of us all. That's the only verse we get, and it's not, not a good one. Then it goes back to Jesus, verse 7. He, Jesus, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And you can fast forward 700 years and read the gospel descriptions of the cross, and when they confront Jesus, he didn't defend himself. He was silent. He was quiet. He fulfilled the prophecy perfectly. Why? Because he wasn't going to defend himself to escape the cross. Why? That was the purpose that he came. 
He's not going to come to earth for a cross and then when it gets up to game time, try to get out of it. He, he, he's exactly what Isaiah said. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Meaning he was judged guilty and he was, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? He was stricken for the transgression of my people. Isaiah's like, he was beat down and stricken and crucified for the sin of someone else. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. It is uncanny how precise predictions and prophecy are of Jesus. Jesus was a poor man. He did not own a burial site. He had no plot in the cemetery. And a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea shows up and gives him his plot to fulfill the prophecy from 700 years before with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, he was innocent. Absolutely perfectly innocent. Verse 10, and yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul, when Jesus' soul makes an offering for guilt. What is Jesus doing on the cross? That phrase, underline it, highlight it. What was he doing on the cross? His soul was making an offering for the guilty. And he shall see his offspring, that's really the the people that would come behind him responding to the gospel to become Christians, and shall prolong his days, meaning Jesus uh, would rise and resurrect from the dead, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. God looking down on the cross, there was an element of satisfaction Not that he was excited about what was taking place, but that he was satisfied that guilt had been paid for, right? Because without a cross, if God truly is just, there is no way out for sinners. If if God is just and we want a just God, we want a justice system and we want uh, judges in our communities that are just and they execute punishment that fits the crime. We like justice. We want justice. If we're guilty and all he has is justice, that's not good news for us. But if all he has is grace and all he has is, is mercy and forgiveness, then that's unjust. He can't just say to sinners, you know what, it's fine. I'll just treat you like it, it never happened. If somebody's convicted in a court of rape and a judge says, you know what, no big deal, just go on. That, that's it's not mercy and grace. It's, not, it's unjust. And so the, the complex situation that humans find themselves in, if they've sinned against a holy God, is how can God be both merciful and graceful and justice? And the cross is the answer. Those things collide and intersect at the cross, and God looked down, and it says that he was satisfied. That the payment for our sin had been paid in full, as Jesus would say, to tell us die on the cross, it is finished. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, that's Jesus, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He's saying the innocent one is going to make a lot of people uh, be treated like they're innocent. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he, Jesus, has poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Why a cross? Of all the things that Jesus could have done, of all the ways he could have died, why a cross? The very simple answer is that Jesus had to be treated as though he was guilty so that you might be treated as though you were innocent. The cross is the only thing that deals with guilt. 
And if we're honest, we're confronted with the measure of the Word of God and the commands of God that aren't just actions, but they even penetrate our heart. And if we're honest about that, um, then we're all guilty, and we can blame, and we can make excuses, and we can run and hide, and we can do all these things, and the guilt remains, and it causes problems. So Jesus decides he is just going to come. He's going to be innocent. He's going to live a perfect life without sin, allow himself to be crucified on a cross in the place of sinners. We call this the uh, theological term, substitutionary atonement. He was a substitute for someone else. The, the reformers called it the great exchange, that in the gospel, Jesus, in the cross, Jesus took upon our guilt, gave us his righteousness, we get to swap. Jesus was treated as guilty so that we might be innocent. Real quick in closing, there's two, there's two big things that the New Testament especially spends a lot of energy trying to convince the New Testament spends a lot of energy trying to convince some people that they're guilty and some people that they're not guilty, right? A lot of energy goes into the fact like, and this is what would make Jesus so angry and upset. He didn't get upset a lot at sinners. He got upset most of the time at religious people who refused to admit that they're guilty. That's what made him angry. That's what made him say the most difficult things. If you think I'm offensive, you should read the words of Jesus, it was offensive enough that the religious people got upset and violated all their laws, illegal trial, and murdered Christ. There are so much trying to convince non-Christians, people, that, that we're guilty. And then there's like an equal amount that tries to explain, if you're in Christ, if you're truly in Christ, like you're not guilty because feelings can be a little deceptive, let me explain. Uh, if, if you're not, uh, if you have not truly responded to the gospel and embraced the cross that Jesus was dying in your place for your sins, then listen, it doesn't really matter if you feel guilty or not because you cannot feel guilty and still be guilty. True story? So what, do, what doesn't matter is our feelings. What matters is the Word of God. And so he, because the Pharisees and the religious people, they didn't feel guilty. They felt awesome. And so there's so much energy spent trying to get every single one of us to the point where we truly believe we're guilty before God. And then once you're in Christ, there's a lot of energy trying to convince us that we're not guilty not because of actions, but because of the imputated righteousness of Christ because he's decided to treat us as innocent. I mean, Romans 8, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because uh, you cannot feel guilty and be guilty, but you can also feel guilty and not be guilty. So my, my question for you, and the cross answers both of these, is which one of those uh, are you this morning? Do you truly need to be confronted with the cross that Jesus was dying in the place of sinners, and that is every single one of us. If that's you, I want to, well, I'm going to read the Bible. I'll let Paul have this word. This is my closing. What are we supposed to do then? What was Jesus doing on the cross if we just kind of forget blaming and forget excuses and forget hiding and just uh, come to the reality that we have, we've not upheld the standard of God's perfection. We're not holy. We're guilty. Paul says this, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, talking about Christians to the world. God is making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. How, Paul, how do we do that? 
And he explains the cross in this one verse, 1 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, that's the sake of the guilty, he, God, made him Jesus. For our sake, he made him to be sin, guilty, who knew no sin, innocent, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only way to deal with guilt is to repent and believe in the cross. That's it. And if you're in the cross, Jesus has dealt with your guilt, and he's done it in the most sufficient way possible. That's the only antidote to human guilt is Jesus dying in our place for our sins. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We worship you. God, our knees bow and our hearts break for what you had to endure to satisfy the justice and the holiness and the wrath of God so that you might extend the love and the mercy and the patience and the forgiveness of God. What a complex God you are. God, the cross is such a profound example of how all of your character is upheld. So, Father, we thank you. I pray that you would uh, really in the deepest place of our heart convince us that, Jesus, you died in our place, that that truly was our cross. God, many of us, maybe we don't feel like we were that bad, but Jesus... Uh, convince us that we were, that sin is a real deal and you truly lived a perfect life, the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. Father, I pray for those this morning that need to truly believe that they're guilty, that they would find forgiveness in Christ. And I pray for those who are truly in Christ to be reminded that they have been uh, liberated and set free and forgiven once and for all. Jesus, we love you. We're indebted to you for all of eternity because of what you've done. And I pray that you'd help us to respond in a matter according to your goodness and your glory in a way that deserve, that help us to respond in a way that you deserve. We love you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.